0: I'm Terry Teachout, drama critic of the Wall Street Journal. And I'm Peter Marks, theater critic of the Washington Post. Welcome to episode 37 of Three on the Isle, a podcast from New York about theater in America. We're hosted by American Theater Magazine, a publication of the Theater Communications Group.
1: Call it two on the aisle this time around. <laughs> Elizabeth Vincentelli, our colleague and third regular panelist, is on vacation in Europe. Isn't she in Corsica?
0: She's from Corsica originally. Isn't that exotic? Yeah, yeah. Yes, and she's back on in, in course, as they say, I think, in French.
1: And we will do our best to struggle along, along without Elizabeth and her gorgeous accent.
0: Exactly, without someone saying you know, the possibility of uh, SpongeBob. SpongeBob. I don't know if this is a real, absolutely verifiable episode <laughs> of uh, Three on the Isle. Anyway, I... Uh, We've decided to tape this episode with just Terry and me in the studio, along with, of course, our new producer, Erica Wong, uh, uh, who is a a gifted former child actress who has appeared on the stage of the Delacorte Theater, which we're going to have to get her to talk about sometime, which is kind of fascinating. She was in a production of Midsummer Night's Dream, directed by Dan Sullivan and Oscar Eustace, uh, played Cobweb, the highly prized uh, uh, child acting (laughs) position. Welcome, so welcome, welcome yeah. aboard, Eric. Uh, but anyway, we didn't want to make uh, our, our loyal audience wait any longer to hear us. So here we are. We shut the shop
1: down last month so that I could spend some time looking after my wife, the amazing Mrs. T. Uh, as many of you know, she suffers from a disease called pulmonary hypertension. She's currently awaiting a double lung transplant, and I've been preoccupied with taking care of her for most of the past month. Like the song says, she's still here. The two of us are still waiting for the big call. Thank God. Yes, from the doctors at New York Presbyterian, and life and theater go on. So here I am, and here we are again.
0: And so Terry and I are p- picking up the mantle once again. We're going to start talking uh, primarily about the first half of the new theater season. Both here and in some other parts of the country, which is now just getting underway in earnest with some early openings, Broadway uh, and New York theater in general don't really get started. I would say they really don't kick in till October. There are some, you know, a few things that open early. Yeah, uh, I'll be uh, reviewing a lot of Washington theater in in September, less so in New York. But Broadway is um, going to be pretty pretty. Uh, high volume between now and the end of 2019. So we thought we would start to take a look at what Terry and I will be uh, burying our heads in for the next uh, three months. After that, we'll dip into our fathomless
1: mailbag and answer a a couple of letters from our listeners. Then we'll wrap the show up in our customary manner going around the horn, if two people are enough to constitute a horn, and talking about shows we've seen since the last podcast that made especially strong impressions on both of us.
0: First, though, let's talk, Terry, about the fall theater season. There is a large crop of Broadway shows after a large number of closings, shutterings, over the last several months. Yeah, they were
1: dropping like flies.
0: Yeah, now, some of that was limited runs of things, but other things that sort of fell by the wayside. Uh, You know, it's always hard to tell exactly what the economic... Uh, uh, pluses and minuses are of various shows on Broadway and what really it says about the audience and how they're doing in general. But there was a whole cleaning out, so to speak, of some of the stuff that we'd seen not yeah, I so do long a th- ago. I do a
1: theater guide every week on my blog, things to go and see. And there's not much on it right at this moment. <laughs> I mean, the, yeah. all the out-of-town shows that I would normally review, have, you know, they have long, shorter runs and they're closed. and and most of the shows i've recommended in new
0: york you can't get into anyway unless you take out a second mortgage <laughs> right well that's it you know there is it's either you know feast or famine it seems like for shows on broadway some you know are those intermediate uh sort of hits like the um uh, the play by um, Jez Butterworth that was such a huge uh, hit last season. I'm, you know, blanking on the name, of course, because it's got... The Ferryman! Right, right. Uh, you know, that really did actually do okay. Enough to tour. Enough oh, to Which t- amazes well, that me, that's another yeah. thing. We've talked about, actually, the sort of the rebirth of the road, um, thanks to Hamilton, which has really sort of opened up a lot of um, slots around the country for other shows uh, to, to fill in schedules. Um, but... Um, so we'll see if this, you know, this kind of we're in this kind of transitional phase, which we'll talk about, I think, to some degree about what's coming in and why uh, to Broadway. Some of it, not what you would have expected five years ago to see on Broadway. Or even two. Or even two years Last ago. Last year,
1: I think, is going to be seen as a watershed moment for possible subject matters, possible shows on Broadway, Maybe.
0: Um yeah, I that's interesting. I mean we should talk about more about that. So there are some high profile star driven revivals. Uh, I, we think it's notable that for example Marissa Tomei is coming back to Broadway in the Rose Tattoo, Tennessee Williams' play, rarely performed. I don't remember the last time it was done in New York. I, I don't Anna Magnani was the most famous yeah. you know, star of that show. Did she win? Oscar for that, I, I think remember. so. Uh, anyway, yeah. or maybe we should. Anyway, and uh, there's going to be a very big coming towards the end of the fall, early winter, a very notable revival directed by Ivo Van Hova of West Side Story, which will sort of be in tandem with I think Stephen, um, with uh, the uh, the movie version uh, that's directed by Steven Spielberg. <laughs> doesn't that
1: go into into previews across the christmas break i think so so, i think so it's
0: right at the 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 tail end of what we're thinking of here um this year though most of the fall openings are new new plays new musicals new people new you know faces we don't necessarily know we have two important transfers from london one of them has just opened and received fairly good response uh the the third Broadway revival since 1980 of Harold Pinter's Betrayal, which is probably his most performed play. It's his days? most.
1: Perfor- it's most performed on Broadway. It has now had four stagings on Broadway. Interesting. More than, the last one more was, than was with any Daniel other Craig and yeah. Rachel Weiss. This one stars Directed Tom by Hiddleston. Mike Nichols,
0: no less. It right. Was, it was Nichols's last Broadway show. Yes, I rem- and that was not too long ago. I mean, it feels like it was just around. You know, it's going to be interesting to see if there's an audience. You know, for Pinter over and over, although Hiddleston is a big sort of well, draw. There's, a, there's an audience for Hiddleston. Yeah. Uh, the other sort of, you know, marquee event, I think, would have to be the, from Britain, is the U.S. premiere by an American playwright, actually, of The Inheritance. It's a two-part marathon. Matthew Lopez uh, wrote The Whipping Man, that was done off-Broadway in New York and done regionally everywhere a few years ago, is the playwright. And, um... So why don't we just sort of start there with that one? Um, I am, interestingly, uh, I have heard mixed things about The Inheritance. I don't know much about it except that it's talked about as the new angels in America. Well, that's right. It is a
1: two-part marathon play uh, about the gay experience, but it's in the present moment, Mm. more or less, not Angels, which is history. Mm -hmm. And I was quite struck by that. When I was out in Houston uh, a year and a half ago doing a show of mine, my uh, assistant director was a young gay man, a millennial, and uh, there was an Angels production going up, and we were talking about that. And he said very casually that he had no particular interest in that Hmm. uh, or or in any of of that generation of gay plays. What he wanted to see... Were plays that reflected the gay experience as he and his generation knew it, mm. and I immediately thought of that conversation uh, when I heard that the, that the inheritance was going up. Um, it is, I gather, sort of modeled after E.M. Forster's *Howard's End* and
0: and and Granville
1: Barker's play, right?
0: Uh, Harley, yeah,
1: right. Uh, you know, which are these are shows about about. Um, classes in conflict as well. And um, two, three years ago, I don't know whether a show like this would have transferred. I don't know how much of a shot it would have had. But the whole feel now for what is possible on Broadway seems to have taken a a tremendous stride, Mm. forward or not, I don't know, but it's different. Uh, We saw it reflected in all sorts of shows last year. Mm. Perhaps the most spectacular example being what the Constitution means to me. Mm. Uh, a show that would never have come to Broadway five years ago.
0: And on the other hand, for me anyway, Gary, a sequel to Titus Andronicus, which I thought was a, you know, just not ready to be seen on any stage, <laughs> it's perhaps. Maybe something, you know, way, way off-Broadway. So yes, but I think that would be another example of something you would never have seen uh, come to Broadway just a few years ago, no?
1: It's funny how suddenly these sea changes will happen suddenly right. and without warning right 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 and this one is of course happening coincident with the whole me too phenomenon which is another ch- mm. another very sudden change in perception about what is acceptable, what is desirable. Should the culture be catching up with its reality? Mm. Uh, I mean, they're obviously not the same phenomenon, but it strikes me that they're related in a way.
0: Well, you know, Terry, you have spoken quite uh, passionately in the past about your uh, aversion to this notion that if it comes from London, it's better, or that that we somehow are receivers of the of the the great gifts of the London theater. Right, Uh, I joke about being an Anglophobe, and it is a joke, but I'm
1: kidding on the square. Um, American theater has nothing to apologize about, and it really vexes me that we always have these prestige openings with lots of people with, with... with accents and you know they're stamped with the seal of approval i rather think that the revival of betrayal is like that Mm -hmm. Uh, it's it's the british prestige show of the first half of the season complete Mm -hmm.
0: with accents Mm -hmm. and frankly i didn't think it was very good oh interesting i have not i've yet to see it i was thinking
1: you haven't reviewed it yet
0: no i haven't Uh, i um and i you know i had a resistance even to seeing it even if it's wonderful i i feel like i've seen that play uh, so, you know, I mean, I know yeah. that's not a good way to necessarily approach things. And often, obviously, you you find that you thought you didn't want to see a show again. And once you see it, you understand there was another way to 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 be exposed to it. But I have not seen that one yet. Well, I just I don't think
1: uh, Betrayal is a very good play. I think it's the weakest of Peter's, so to speak, popular plays. Mm-hmm. Uh, I said in my review in the journal, it was it was like old times with all the gaps filled in. And when you fill in the gaps, the gaps are what make Pinter, makes Penner Pinter.
0: Right, right, and when right. You fill
1: them in. Sometimes what's gotten filled in is
0: trite. Well, it's almost as if he tried to write for a, a more in a more popular vein with Betrayal. Right. It's it's not there is there isn't much mystery in that piece. I think. And I also felt that the, the production itself was staged by Jamie
1: Lloyd and got tremendous reviews in London. Mm-hmm. Uh, But that it has that smell of self importance Mm -hmm. to it. Adam Feldman thought he didn't
0: express it in that way, but he clearly thought the same thing. Well what do you think though? You know, one of the things that's interesting to me about the inheritance, just to go back to that, is that it almost has the same pedigree as Angels had, which was done I mean, it had been done here experimentally sort of, and then it went to London, had this smashing success at the National, two parts, the whole deal, you know. It's almost as if we're sort of reliving that with Lopez coming in uh, to uh, to New York with a play that had this sort of stellar experience. Two parts about gay life uh, coming, but th- again by an American playwright right. who the, had it spun through the the London cycles. The
1: good housekeeping
0: seal of British approval, <laughs> right? It's, you know, does that make you skeptical? Uh, you know, or, as a, or, or somehow feel like this is you know being sort of prefabricated for uh, an American critical well, response? it
1: triggers my skeptical reflexes, but I shut those off when I sit down in the yeah. aisle seat. You know, I really do. Yeah. And uh, yeah. but I also think. There are other ways to put an ambitious show like this up in New York. Mm. And the, the locus classicus of that, of course, is August Osage County. Right. A purely domestic product. Right. Uh, uh, and, of course, event theater, no question about it. But uh, it didn't need anybody's good good housekeeping seal of approval. Right. It was just one where the buzz was tremendous and people decided, we got to get this show to New York. We mm-hmm. can make this work. And yeah. boy, did it work. Yeah. Um, so I'm completely right. open. I mean and I think it is a, as my friend's experience in Houston suggests it is a good moment an interesting moment to have a, a like what they call in in Britain there's a certain kind of play they call the, the state of state of England
0: play. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, a, state of a state of the gay community is there a gay community now right uh has it disintegrated in the same way that all of, of american culture has become vociferous and and uh, uh, tribal uh what is this play going to tell us that we don't know is it going to be giving us a snapshot of a world we don't understand is it is it going to to change our perception about the way we live now. Uh, I'm,
0: I'm game. I'm open for
1: yeah. seeing what it's going to
0: be like. As always. I mean, you and, and ambition, you know, something ambitious is always welcome. And it'll be interesting to see who exactly, whom this is for.
1: Yeah. So what else awaits us on Broadway? The other new and nearly new plays <laughs> set to open before the end of the year include Florian Zeller's The Height of the Storm, starring Jonathan Price and Eileen Atkins, and directed by Jonathan Kent, of whom we have not seen nearly
0: enough. And he on Broadway and Florian Zeller previously represented by the father with uh, Franklin Langella and the mother with Isabella Gianni. or was it um, who was it with?
1: Can't like, remember yeah,
0: anyway. Uh, yes, also we're going to get in the play category, uh, the Great Society. Robert Schenken sequel to the Tony winning All the Way about all LB, LBJ this time with LBJ last time played by Brian Cranston this time by the wonderful Brian Cox right. currently astonishing in HBO's Succession I wonder if that's enough to fill the house. I mean, obviously, the
1: success of All the Way was all about Brian Cranston. Right,
0: I don't think so. And and the question is whether people need another play about LBJ. I mean, Mm -hmm. do they really want that? Again, we're in a sort of, you know, we are in a political moment, so maybe that has. I have seen The Great Society. It was running. Well, I I
1: have to be careful about that because it was running. In Houston, at the Alley Theater,
0: you didn't review it. When,
1: well, no, because I had a play in rehearsal right. at the Alley.
0: Right, right, right. Uh, so were in when I directed
1: right. *Satchmo*. So, uh, so I have seen it. Uh, I don't particularly want to talk about it until I see this
0: production. Uh-huh. Well, I can see, you know, I can see his uh, Terry's face. You can't out there, and he's got a pained look on his face. So no, I'm not going to no. read too much into that. It's I, getting more pained as I speak.
1: I didn't. Much like all the way, I, I mean, yeah,
0: no, it's not a great play.
1: It wasn't a violent aversion or anything like that. I just didn't think it was well made. Cranston
0: is a genius oh God, at yes. transformation. He can transform mediocre work—not mediocre, sorry, Robert Schengen. its not mediocre. It's under 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 realized work into something of note. There is something majestic, I think, about what he can do. The way he did with Network. Uh, in a in a major role, you leave it to him. The question is, can Cox reinvent this part in a way that has as much of a galvanizing Yeah, effect? and Brian Cox is a damn good actor. Oh, he's so the best.
1: We also have Freestyle Love Supreme, Yay! an improvised hip-hop musical, quotes that is in, that is Lin-Manuel Miranda's first new piece of work to hit Broadway since Hamilton, and thus, by definition, significant.
0: And also, predates Hamilton. It, he has, they have been doing... Uh, versions of Freestyle Love Supreme since he was in college at Wesleyan, essentially. And the gang that he's sort of gotten together of hip hop um, improvisers, these hip hop uh, stylists, uh, it's kind of like uh, the Wizard of Oz, gathering more and more people down the yellow brick road. Now they're gonna have whole new people uh, in addition to uh, Utkarsh, who's wonderful, and Anthony Veneziale, he, and James Monroe Iglehart, uh, Lynn manuel is going to show up for some performances. Did you see it at the Barrow Street no, Theater? No, I didn't. I'll be interested to see what you think. It's uh, And how it plays in a bigger theater will be an interesting question. I have a feeling it's going to be a big hit and that it will extend beyond its limited run. That's my guess. Well, if
1: it does, he's going to break the jinx. I mean... I have been ever since Hamilton opened, I have said to myself, how do you follow this act? Will he ever be able to follow it? Usually what would normally happen would be that your next show will be a flop.
0: Right. Well, he's not. It's it's in such a different vein, essentially. I mean, there are sort of like, you know, marginal hip hop sort of connections you can see. But really, improv is an improv is a tough sell on Broadway. No doubt about it. I think this one will connect. It's a it's a smart use of their of the connection that Lin Manuel has forged with theater goers, uh, and I and I and judging from the audience I saw off Broadway, it's not just a young crowd. It's the traditional crowd he gets. The traditional Broadway lovers will show up for this one, and he is a platinum brand yeah. right now. Yeah. So also of course coming up we have. A real outlier, I think, for Broadway, the Broadway transfer from the New York Theater Workshop of Jeremy O'Harris's slave play. Arguably the most talked about play of the last season. Yes, uh, uh, you know, provocative times 10. Uh, we'll talk about it, I'm sure, when the wonderful Ms. Vincentelli comes back from right. laying on a beach or whatever they have on the shores in, in of Corsica. Corsica yeah. Uh, but uh, and I didn't.
1: I will be seeing it for the first time on Broadway. Okay, that's uh, yeah, it's the same cast, I think. Basically, yeah, it's coming coming across straight.
0: I, I wonder if he's worked on it at all. It it's a really interesting concept. Some of it felt overindulged, but. You know, it, you could say that about you know, about 50% of what we see, although in, on Broadway, that's a harder sell. It's going to be interesting to see who comes, and I think also if it's going to be perceived as maybe an act of resistance to come see slave play, because it really does change the narrative for what we think of as um, the fare that Broadway audiences respond to.
1: Well, I'll tell you something else. Everything I've heard about it suggests to me that it's a small house show. Mm. Is it going to be able to make the transition? Great question. To a much larger theater. Did you some, see it, Erica?
0: Erica shakes shake her shows, head. Out. Some Just shows, some shows
1: make it. Some shows don't. I would never have bet, for example, that Fun Home would have made the transition to a large I, house. I know exactly. You know, exactly. Uh,
0: you, uh, you know I, and and I would, I am surprised, for example, that Oklahoma still running. Yeah. Um. Uh, so uh, you know, I didn't really think it. I didn't think the word of mouth would allow it to. I I actually thought it was an interesting production. I don't think it was the best I've ever seen of Oklahoma, but you know, it's true. You don't know where it's sliding in. And Harris is a really wonderful promoter of his own work. I mean, he knows how to sell himself. If you follow him on Twitter, he is tireless uh, and and uh, and interesting. You know, he tries to engage and without like losing his own voice so it's going to be interesting to see if that if if that personality you know he almost brings back the idea of the playwright as celebrity which has really sort of you know dissipated over the last I would say two generations. Boy, what would be the
1: equivalent of Edward Albee going on Johnny Carson?
0: <laughs> exactly. Do we well, have such a thing nowadays? No, exactly. Really and he's, you know, he's he's wonderful. You know, he's he's a, a flashy dresser if I can say that. I mean, he has a fashion sense that is singular. Uh, he, you know, it's all uh, it's all of a piece with a uh, with a uh, you know, he he and the and his work sort of work in tandem and it will be I'm going to be fascinated to see how much that Translates also, I mean, not to, that is not to say that the content of slave play is not something that, as you say, makes it a conversation piece more than anything possibly we're going to see this season. Yeah. Two
1: new plays by two familiar authors The Sound Inside, a new play by Adam Rapp. Has he been done on Broadway before? I don't think so. Okay, I don't think so. No, me neither. And Linda Vista, Tracy Letts's new play, which I saw and reviewed when it was premiered at Steppenwolf two or three years ago, and I was tremendously impressed by it. I thought in some ways it was the best thing that he'd given us wow. so far. And those are very high standards. It's a long show. He tends to write long. I, I believe it was maybe 2.30, maybe longer. It's a it's a tough play. It's a play about a uh, middle-aged uh, male, uh, middle-aged crisis. It's... Uh, It's challenging material, and I was completely caught up in it.
0: Well, um, there's also uh, going to be, and uh, Jesse Green of the New York Times should cover his ears for this next uh, statement, two new jukebox musicals. And if you don't know why I said that, you have to read Jesse (laughs) on jukebox musicals. But there's two coming up, Tina the Musical, which was a big hit in London about Tina Turner, based on Tina Turner, you know, much like... Every other <laughs> show about a rock star, I think, starring Adrian Warren, who is this wonderful... Adrian? Yeah, Adrian Warren, who was in um, uh, uh, Shuffle Along on Broadway. And
1: a book by Katori Hall. And, a- and that makes it interesting. I don't like jukebox musicals as a general rule.
0: And I liked but, Ain't Too Proud. And I yeah. thought Dominique Morriso
1: did a good job but with that. Katori Hall is a serious playwright. Mm-hmm. Uh, she is, in fact on my short list of people whose new work I will go out of my way to see in other cities. Her ears are warming up Well, as you she's I've said it in the paper before. So if she's involved with this show and of course Tina Turner's life is intrinsically interesting. It is dramatic. Interesting. Yeah. I yeah. Mean,
0: it's, but there was I mean there was the, you know, there you know, uh, Angela Bassett played her in the movies. Yes. I mean it's not like it hasn't it's not it's it's sort of been covered. So I you know I don't know what I, you know, I think it's going to, my guess is that like the Cher show, it will have that kind of, um, it might have that kind. I I hate to, you know, I am, I have not seen it. I don't know. It might be a really fantastic star turn. So we'll see. I mean, there are jukebox
1: shows that I just think of going in as wrist slitters. I just don't want to see them. Mm -hmm. I I would give a lot not to see them. This one. You're interested. I'm totally open to the possibility. That this good. might be a good show. I might add that I really like Tina Turner.
0: What oh. a what a singer! So. Yeah, amazing. And, and amazing. what a
1: tough person.
0: So yeah. Oh no, no, a survivor. We'll one of see. those survivors. And the other one is uh, *Jagged Little Pill*, which had a run in Boston, directed by I think Diane. Did she do? it? Did she actually? Um, I think that's her show. Uh, and and it, it's got the songs of Alanis Morissette. So does that make
1: this the first jukebox musical for Gen X?
0: What about American uh, Idiot wasn't for Gen X? Uh, it wasn't for anybody. <laughs> oh. <No. laughs> <laughs> yeah, but Green Day was, you know, that's a, you know, yeah, my daughter went yeah. crazy for Green Day. She's sort of millennial. Well, I don't all know 12 of Green crazy. Day's fans were. Uh, I don't know. Is that the first? Fr- who knows anymore? There's so many of them. we'd have to, you know. You know, uh, anyway. I, I, it's like, how you know, are we going to really start talking about Jukebox? It's not the most interesting thing of the season. No. Oh, but we should talk, though, Terry, about. You know, there's an interesting off-Broadway play that's coming. There's David Henry Wong's quite a few. Soft Power, which I think yeah. has Broadway feel, mouthfeel about it. I haven't seen it, but just sort of this, the, 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 the scope of what it's supposed to do. Um, I don't know if you've had any sense of that.
1: No, but I'm interested. I'm, I'm certainly going to try to work it in. Also, in terms of, of high-quality uh, fare off-Broadway, Bedlam, is bringing a small-scale production of The Crucible into New York. They're trying it out in Cambridge. And uh, David Stoller's Project Shaw, which which does monthly readings of Shaw's plays but is now branched into fully staged productions, is doing Caesar and Cleopatra, which I, off-Broadway, which I gather has not been staged in New York for something like a half-century. So, uh, and, you know, there'll there'll be plenty of things to see no matter what it is that you like to see but out of this array of shows let's wrap it up but I'm asking you what do you like what is it that you're most excited about seeing
0: well I, I was about to launch into a, a thing about soft power which I think is a really uh, smart idea I, I should say that it's by uh, David Henry Wong with music by Janine Tesori of Fun Home Fame and it just sounds to me like the kind of uh, uh, piece that I can really sink my teeth into it's a exploration of Americans America's place in the world but told through um, China's point of view, which I think is a really interesting notion especially at this moment. my yeah. God yeah. Uh, I am interested in seeing and feeling sort of political context but told in in innovative ways. I don't want to I don't want didactic sermonizing shows. I want them to be sort of imaginative explorations and this one sounds like it's got that possibility. it's directed by Lee Silverman. Uh, who's done a lot of Wong's pieces before? Um, so that would be the one uh, in New York. I'm really, really curious about it's gonna be done at the pub- public theater.
1: Well, I of course, I mean I've having seen uh, Linda Vista, I know how good a play it is, and I'm by definition excited about that. Uh, I'm really curious to see what Eric Tucker does with The Crucible, Mm. a play that is very easy to get wrong, very easy to do in a heavy-handed way. And Eric, as as we know, having had him as a guest, always brings something new and fresh to the table. And one thing we haven't mentioned that we should is that the Public Theater is doing a very rare revival of Tony Kushner's A Bright Room Called
0: Day. Oh, wow.
1: So we'll finally get to see something by Kushner that's not Angels in America.
0: Mm. And mm, see mm, what mm. we think of it, and I think actually, aren't they bringing back Carolina Change later in the season? Later not, in the season, yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, so what you can hear from both of us and Elizabeth, wherever you are, I know, I know you're listening. Uh, you're going to be bu- as busy as we are this fall, and and on that note, we should turn to what readers are thinking about these days, and we've got a pair of letters that we've pulled out that should make for some interesting dialogue. Uh, So the first
1: one is from somebody, uh, a listener named Jeffrey Dutille, I think that be how he pronounces his name. And Erica, if you will, do the honors. Read the letter. Acknowledging that they are very different mediums, I wondered if you might compare some of the Broadway musicals and plays you've seen to their movie versions. What changes were made to the original material that made it actually better on screen or much, much worse? Perhaps you could even take a show, uh, perhaps you could each take a show that you think worked or was even better than the stage version and one that was a terrible movie version of a wonderful stage show. The second is easier. I have seen very few musicals made in Hollywood that were remotely comparable in quality to the stage shows in which they were based. Um, I'm not sure that I would call it an improvement but, of course, the Fosse film of Cabaret is the is the gold standard for films that take a different direction from the stage production and make it work, so much so that, that a lot of Fosse's innovations have actually been incorporated now into stage productions of Cabaret. But as far as screwing up a, a play or a musical, I would scarcely know where to begin. Probably Guys and Dolls, which surely is the, the worst... <laughs> <laughs> musical film musical ever made out of not just a great stage musical but maybe the great stage musical mm. certainly one of the half dozen uh, Broadway musicals that, that is infallible in stage effect uh, a production that gets everything wrong right down to the orchestrations and if you know the show you just sit there and wince for for 2 hours
0: well well i just went and I, so jeffrey has really turned our heads around what we usually talk about which is movies made into musicals right he's really asking the question just so you understand out there the question of things that were started as as stage musicals and became movie musicals and you are saying that cabaret is the gold standard I think so yeah well I think that it is in a class by itself and Fossey Verdon that that most uh, that great little uh, FX miniseries really showed some of why that was the case I think recently on TV I, I think that um I think that Rob Marshall's Chicago was a great uh, uh, movie version of a of a stage musical. I thought he did yeah. a great job of turning a conceit uh, into an idea. Into an, a full-blown idea, which was that these the musical numbers were in the heads of the of the of the characters, and that played on a different plane than um, than the way it plays on the stage. He wasn't afraid to go his own way, but it
1: wasn't in an, an artificial, boring Hollywood way, which is usually what happened when the great stage musicals were filmed. And they, they, were, they were blown right, out of proportion, right. Put on widescreen. You know, every everything that makes a, a stage musical special gets lost.
0: And I would say that the worst state uh, the most disappointing mu- movie version of a musical I've ever seen. I think that's an interesting point about Guys and Dolls. Except that when I saw Guys and Dolls, first time I ever saw it was on its movie ver- was its movie version on TV. Really? First time I ever saw it, and when I was very young, and I was kind of beguiled by the the world it created. Even though you're absolutely right, I thought Marlon Brando was miscast, and uh, Frank Sinatra really wasn't believable. Vivian Blaine obviously was fantastic doing, and I thought for just a person develops a cold, you know, was you know worth the entire evening, even though much of it was terrible. But I think the very worst I've seen was the translation of a chorus line to, to movie. Yeah, that's it, a nightmare. It was. so... <laughs> It just, it was so flat, and it just, it like if you showed that to people and you said this was a Pulitzer Prize-winning stage musical and changed American theater, they go, "That's really sad." I mean, you know, it just didn't, it didn't do anything that the stage version did.
1: We haven't even talked about filmed plays, which you could you could go on for uh, an hour. Well, sure, on that subject, and every once in a while they're done well. But, but the list of, of film plays that have been done very badly, mm-hmm. I, ha- I happened to watch this one for professional reasons a year or so ago. There was a Hollywood film in The Glass Menagerie with Kurt Kurt douglas in it now i mean was no, he the gentleman caller he was yeah i mean it, no he no <laughs> he, he was tom he, he was tom i don't remember that. well it's because it never gets shown and and yet <laughs> you know gertrude lawrence is in it it's oh a, yeah it's, no
0: that's true no you course, know it's a, it, yeah, now it I mean, should have in right.
1: tennessee williams nominally worked on the screenplay. yeah uh and yet there there were a few golden age films that they never they never completely preserve the sense of the play, but sometimes they get a lot of it. Uh, the Our Town film does. Well, you know, it's, for and it's interesting how
0: many actors have won Oscars for you know their performances in the movie versions of stage plays. I yeah. mean, you know, Vivian Lee and um, you know, I mean, it goes on and on and on. You can think of On Golden Pond, for God's sakes. I mean, some of them. You know what was a, you know Driving Miss Daisy was a good uh, I thought film version of a mo- of a of a stage play.
1: Well, that may point to. Uh, um, what i call simon's law john simon uh, coined it which is if it's if it's worth adapting it can't be adapted mm. and if it can be adapted uh, it's not worth adapting mm. and while that is not nearly always true it points to a reality which is that the better the source material the harder it is to translate it into film
0: right terms right uh,
1: that, i mean that's a whole other discussion musical Indeed. musicals are pretty easy i mean most most everybody knows the horror shows you know i will run from the room screaming instead of watching our town and
0: our, there's a, and uh, there, on the town. we have to devote a segment at some point to what ryan murphy is doing because he's he's now there's a whole new regeneration happening he's going to do a chorus line by the way a chorus line is going to be done at signature theater this fall in arlington virginia with a completely new choreography by dennis jones who's a broadway choreographer which i'm really looking forward to we can talk about that separately anyway but he, ryan murphy's going to do a 10-part series of a chorus line as i as saw a, that i mean you know this is you know you each apparently each each episode is going to be about one of the you know the auditioners i you think that's it's a good idea if it, if it's done well, right?
1: I don't understand how. And if it's not it's done well, gonna it's going to
0: be awful. Yeah, I don't understand how quite how it's going to work musically. But, yeah. but anyway, we'll see. Yeah, we'll we'll, see. we shall see.
1: So there's another letter in the pot from Eldon Golden, uh, who gets right to the point. Uh, Erica, what I would like to know is how do you prepare to see a play, whether a brand new play, a classic, an existing play you've never seen before, or something else. If it's a brand new play, as a general rule, I try not to prepare at all. I don't want to know about it in advance. I mean, obviously, we hear buzz. We live in New York. But if it's a new play, I would like, insofar as possible, to come to it clean, the same way that the audience does. We are usually sent the scripts in advance of the preview that we see. I never look at them. I don't want to know mm-hmm. what, what's your policy on uh,
0: that? Uh, yeah. I, I, I follow a similar rule with, with um, revivals of plays that I'm not really that familiar with. I tend to want to read them. If I have the time and it's a major revival, I will go and look uh, at a classic play because the whole point of revival is very, it's a very different thing, which is what, why bring it back? What's, what's new about what you're saying? Yeah. And even if you haven't seen it before, there's, a, uh, there's going to be a point of view that's going to be worth distilling in a review that's going to be somehow different than the original intended, except in some cases where there is a kind of museum piece quality to it where it's just trying to resurrect exactly what, uh, what originally was on stage.
1: And I want to inform myself about textual revisions or alternate versions. I mean, mm-hmm. something that comes up in the case of Shaw's or another other playwrights. I mean, I... I I want to know going in if there are issues that I need to be aware
0: of in terms of of what show is being done, and and also right, and I also think that you know a new play instantly is contemporaneous. It doesn't have to. You do not have to think about you know what the context is except for right now. Yeah. With any revival, one really wants to understand at some in some way the world in which this play was birthed. And and that doesn't necessarily change one's outlook about what you see on the stage, except that you want to be able to tell readers something about the the original impression that audiences might have experienced, even if that's not even, you know, laid out in in, in a quite in, in in a very uh d- distinct way of course by now you and I have been doing this for a long time
1: right and there aren't that I know, many it's true there aren't that many important plays that I've never seen right and we've talked about and, this and, in yeah, in the past. and not so many that I've never reviewed but there are still s- plays regarded as classic that I have never seen and we mentioned one of them earlier I have never seen a staged production of Shaw's Caesar and Cleopatra. Yeah, I haven't either. So, and I also and that's exciting. Yeah, and there are addition issues with that too. So I will definitely look at the script. I'll ask them, and it's and also David Stoller will be doing it in a somewhat shortened version, which is very smart with Shaw. Nowadays, Shaw's plays, which are out of copyright, are they tend now to be done in. In somewhat abridged versions, and I'll probably check and say, "Okay, what have you done to this? Exactly, what am I going to be seeing?"
0: Do you think it's a, you think it's cheating? In reference to Eldon's question, do you think it's cheating to after you see a play for the first time to read the play?
1: No. Oh gosh, no. I mean. Um, it's handy now that we typically get, when we're sent scripts, they're an email version, and that means... Usually
0: after we see the show. Uh, sometimes
1: before. Sometimes. But the point is that they're searchable. And so when I'm taking notes in the theater, I, I will write before we got scripts. When I first started reviewing, of course, we didn't get scripts in this way. Now, when I and I would have to write down quotes, which was a tremendous nuisance, especially when, like me, you're left-handed and writing in the dark. Now all I have to do is write down maybe three words exactly and right. legibly, right. and I can search them and go straight to the point in the script where they are, which right. makes my job a lot easier. Yeah. But, um, I mean, sometimes sometimes I'll go to the script and find out that the actor on stage was rolling his own. I mean, <laughs> the, the, the right. most spectacular instance of that, of course, was Al Pacino's performance in, in David Mamet's China oh. Doll where he had he had teleprompters all over the stage hidden, and he was still doing a whole lot of improvising. And I wouldn't have known that
0: had I not <laughs> gone back to the script and checked. I remember, what, I remember watching him, and his eyes would be weirdly not focused on his interlocutor. He would be like looking to the wings at the points at which he was clearly supposed to be confronting the person. And I was thinking, my God he obviously is like creating the idea that he has something on his mind, but it was always fixated in one spot until I realized it was, in fact, a screen that he was referring to the whole time.
1: Well, to get, to get back to the general principle, as a very general rule, I prefer to see the play as fresh as I can, but I want to make sure that, that at least at some point in my career as a critic... I've done the prep work, that I'm coming in knowing
0: enough to be able to write about it. Have you ever had the situation where, so if you've read a play before you've gone, an old play, let's just say you've refreshed your memory. Have you ever had the experience of finding that you didn't like what you read? Or that you had a problem with it no. and that you were now waiting to see if they solved the problem? Oh, or do you, can you keep, you, you know, You how must
1: have we... an example because this,
0: it's never happened
1: to me mm-hmm. and I'm fascinated.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, uh, I'm trying to think myself, you know, I, I tend to get excited at the idea of someone taking on challenging plays, maybe even something that doesn't sort of jump off the page. At me, you know, maybe uh, some of like Shaw's more difficult plays, maybe some of the Greeks that I can't sometimes see how they're going to be living again, and to find that they actually do. Sometimes I find that with Beckett. Sometimes I find that with Ionesco. I mean, you know, uh, but I don't find I was I was asked that question just because I don't necessarily ever feel oh god now i have to see this thing <laughs> 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 i you know, it doesn't happen really no. i and i don't know what that is you know i don't know what the, i guess that's why we're doing this well the
1: plays I, I you know i have a mental list which sometimes i publish on my blog as an update for theater companies of plays that I will travel to review. Not Mm -hmm. that right now I'm doing a lot of traveling because of Mrs. T, but nevertheless, uh, for many years, the top of the chart on that list was Joe Orton's What the Butler Saw, which nobody did. Mm. And now it it now gets done uh, fairly regularly. And I've been able to bear out my, my sense that it is, in fact, as good on the stage as I thought it was on the page. Usually... With these plays, I've I either know them through reading, or there have been in some cases uh, some pretty good film versions of them. Uh, I'm a big challenge, a big champion of Terence Rattigan, and many of his best plays have been filmed well, like the Browning version of the Deep Blue Sea, uh, and and you know that they're good, mm-hmm. but you want to see how they work on stage. Mm-hmm. Or Ed
0: Bagnall's The Chalk Garden, right. Um, That's another interesting category, which is things you've seen first in another medium that were originally for, meant for the stage, and then you see them. On the yeah,
1: stage. I mean, my my I, I, again, I've been doing this long enough that when I see the Radigan films, I think, okay, this does work, mm-hmm. but I can see that it would be better on stage. Mm-hmm. And when, in due course, I've been able to see the shows on stage, sure enough, I mean, they were conceived in terms of theatrical experience; they work better that way. Uh, Noel Cowart's plays are the same way. Some of them have been filmed quite well. Uh, the film of Blythe Spirit is quite good. But that is a play that is just better when it's done, when you're seeing it in the house. Mm. Um, and, I mean, I, I don't like to be aggressive or snobbish in talking that way. I, I want people to get into theater by any direction that they possibly can and if you have never seen a play by Noel Coward and you watch the film of Blythe Spirit, you'll know what a Noel Coward play is mm. like and, mm. and you'll you'll want to see more of them. But they're better when you see them with other people in a live
0: audience being acted live. So I guess I mean to sum up for Eldon, you know, we in in general we try to see the play like you see the play. Yes. Because that's the job. The job is not to uh, not to try and prove how smart you are about the other things that you know you note because you've studied up. It's really about the experience of seeing it and what that has done to you and what that reminds you of and how it how it relates to your own life and to the lives of other people. You just said
1: something really interesting. I I, I feel that part of my job as a critic is that I'm a teacher. But I don't want it to feel that way. Right. And I don't want to sound that way. Right. Because at the bottom of my job is me sitting in a seat. Having the same kind of experience that you're seeing and having, and reporting on it, uh, Calvin Trillin says when you when you write about a restaurant, the information that you want to supply is: Did you enjoy yourself? Did you clean your right. plate? Right. I always, when I've read when I write a review, I always want you, the reader, to know first of all: Did I clean my plate?
0: And I think you succeed at that.
1: I really feel like. Um, the most important thing that we as critics can convey is enthusiasm. I agree. If we feel it.
0: Totally. And totally right. Some critics, that energy.
1: Some critics are not good at it. No. Um,
0: I, well, we've talked about this, but some critics don't like the, th- the theater that much. Well, or they've been too long, they've right. gotten
1: jaded. I, right. I really feel like it's a great stroke of fortune that I didn't start doing this until I was in my at the end of my 40s. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to get jaded at this point. I mean, maybe if I live to 120, I will. But uh, uh, barring that, I think I'm still going to get excited every time I go into the theater and sit down.
0: There, There is some parallel. We should move on. But there is some parallel, I do really believe, between the way actors have to shed um, their outer skin to to reveal a character and the way critics have to re- shed some of their um, inhibition and sense of maybe their self-consciousness to be able to, ex- to share what they think what's happening in front of them. Right, that and, that,
1: and that most beautiful of all theatrical phrases to be completely present. Right. That's our goal. Just I'm, like just like you, just like the actors. I'm gonna cry now. Well, I, it moves me. <laughs> Many thanks to Elton Jeffrey, and allow me to all of you considering the possibility of sending us a note, to wish it would. But let me add this reminder: write to us at three on the aisle at gmail.com, taking care to spell out three, and we will happily consider using your letter on a
0: future podcast. Absolutely. And and now let's wrap up this episode, this two-hander. With our usual round-the-two-hands discussion, or our our unusual two-handed discussion of shows we've seen since our last podcast, uh, some of which we loved and some of which we didn't. Terry?
1: Well, I haven't seen much since our last podcast. Obviously, I've been preoccupied. But I did get to two shows, both of them out of town and both of them very much worth reporting on. Uh, One of them others have written about in New York. It is uh, the Hudson Valley Shakespeare Festival's production of Into the Woods. Mm. It is their first first musical. It was directed by Jen Thompson, whom I've had many occasions to talk about on this podcast. I think she is one of the half dozen most interesting younger directors on the East Coast. And she did a, a perfect staging of Into the Woods with a perfect cast in a perfect environment. A wooded bluff mm. on, on, oh. on the edge of the Hudson River. Perfect. You, you couldn't have asked. I can envision it. It, it was just lovely. The other one, though, uh, we haven't had any other notice of it. And it's a play that really should be done more often and that more people should know about. And it is N. Richard Nash's The Rainmaker. Oh, I love The Rainmaker. Uh, it's a lovely play, play. And I've only had occasion to review it once in a black box theater in Chicago. Well, it was revived beautifully by Shakespeare Theatre of New Jersey, uh, directed by Bonnie Monty, that company's artistic director. Uh, And that production made a real case for this feeling that this play, this delightful play, Everybody who sees it just feels better after they've seen it, but it's not just a feel-good play; it is an American classic.
0: And and became I mean, it's done much more now, I guess, with because of Audrey McDonald in part, but as a musical As the musical of the version. But of the it is crochet. a wonderful. It is a lovely play.
1: Well, Bonnie, this is rare for a, a theater director. She also designed her set, mm. uh, just a plain as dirt farmhouse, a cast full and. The Stroke of Genius, she cast as Lizzie Curry, uh, the the central character in the play, uh, a young woman named Monette McGrath, who I I think is very attractive, but she's not like, say, Audra McDonald. Mm -hmm. The key to this role is it's supposed to be played by a woman who thinks she is plain and therefore should not be obviously a, a, a... Gorgeous, right, you know, like Audrey right, McDonald's gorgeous.
0: Right, right. In the old, the old sort of, you know, sexist term, an old maid. Who right, thinks of herself as that.
1: Right, and and so that she can undergo a transformation when, in the course of the play, uh, she falls in love with the rainmaker, the con man who comes to town, claiming to be able to to end the drought that is destroying this this small Midwestern town, and uh, it changes her, just as his influence changes everyone else in the play mm. and uh it's a, it's a was a lovely production but monette mcgrath really gave the performance i had always wanted to see mm. uh, the right person giving the right performance in a beautiful show so mm. i guess if because everything I saw this summer, I wasn't at all surprised that Jen Thompson would do a good job with Into the Woods at Hudson Valley on that on that uh, outdoor sped. But to see the Rainmaker done perfectly at Shakespeare Theater of New Jersey, that was really a that was a great experience.
0: Mm. Uh, my my summer was uh, not heavily populated with theater, but it maybe had a little bit more than Terry. I wanted to talk about uh, quickly about two things I've seen. One in Washington, which was Signature theater's revival of Stephen Sondheim and John Weidman's *Assassins*, oh, which I desperately wanted to travel to see. Yeah, since I don't like
1: the show. Say it again. I don't like the show, and so I was really wanting to be persuaded.
0: Well, I don't know if this would have sold you, but it, it's uh, you know it has that sort of uncomfortable feeling for an audience. They're not quite sure what's going on. It's really about, it's an exploration of the, for for want of a better word, dementia, of this assortment of very screwed up people who thought they would achieve something by either trying to or actually assassinating an American president. Very unusual topic for an American musical. Sondheim, being somewhat perverse, uh, thought it would make an interesting sort of almost vaudeville. It's a set of vignettes with music. Um, I love the music for this show, and I kind of groove on the completely unique uh, set of portraitures that it allows in this particular production, An actor from Washington named Bobby Smith plays Gateau, Charles Gateau, who uh, assassinated Garfield yes, uh, and um. He has this sort of beatific smile on his face throughout the production. There's a kind of sense of him in his own world that works so beautifully with his song. Uh, He sings this very uh, crazy song, which the lyric is, I'm going to the Lordy, Uh, and I am so glad, and it's a kind of strange, sort of convoluted... Something that Gitto actually said. Exactly. Um, Other characters like Hinckley and uh, Squeaky Frome, John Hinckley, who tried to assassinate Reagan, and Squeaky Frome, who tried to kill Ford, do this wonderful sort of folk song-inspired piece, uh, Unworthy of Your Love, which (laughs) I love. Anyway, I thought it was a very well-done production. I thought it was... uh, as good as it will get not quite as stunning as the Broadway production of several years ago with Neil Patrick Harris as the balladier but anyway, um I thought it was a very worthy <coughs> version and I also yeah, when really
1: it's when it's Sondheim, I'm always willing to give him another try a second chance. We're dealing with a genius here
0: and uh, it's one of those that will always it will never be I think it deserves uh to be in the front rank of his achievements It will always be I think by the the consensus will be that it's a lesser, uh, it's lesser material, but that's almost because of the nature of its structure, which you know really is very loose and um, almost feels sort of wandering um, at times. But that's sort of a reflection, I think, of the minds of the people it chronicles. Anyway. The other piece I wanted to talk about briefly was in was in, was in the park, uh, Central Park, uh, the uh, Public Works production of Hercules. Oh,
1: another show I so wanted to see.
0: Uh, and uh, I will say that I had very low expectations for it, just based on the the original Disney animated version, which I think is minor. I don't think it's Alan Menken's best score. David Zippel does the does Zippel did the the lyrics. And it's got a new book in the park by Christopher Diaz, and it's directed by Lear de Bassanet, one of your favorites. One of my great favorites. And she does a wonderful job. It's with a cast of 200. Most of them are amateurs, community theater people from Brooklyn and the Bronx, and it's very moving in that way. It's an unusual choice for this kind of format. Would you think about a Disney musical getting its world premiere, but it's got a wonderful... Lead performance from an actor, an African American actor named Jelani Aladeen, who plays Hercules, and I think may be the best distillation of an animated Disney character ever to take human form. It's just that compelling and fun and alive—a performance. I don't know that it would work on, you know, another setting. It really does work in this kind of, you know, corporate civic amalgamation. And I was happy to have been there to see it. I don't think it's a great musical. I think it's, an, it's a fun evening. And it was probably done in exactly the right format on that stage.
1: I have mixed feelings about Lear's interest in these projects. I think she's one of the best directors maybe that we have now. And I would rather see her directing professionals in these highly original stagings that, that I know she's capable of doing. Did you see her
0: good woman obsession? I sure oh did. And God. that's part of what I'm thinking yeah. of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On the
1: other hand, I, I, this is a really noble thing that she does. The community involvement about which she is passionate. It's really a central part of her identity as a theater artist and, uh, you know, in the end, you got to let people do what they want to do.
0: And the achievement on this on these occasions is to make these people to use these people in a way that, you know, both dignifies what they're doing and not make it and, and also doesn't devalue what an audience is seeing. Yes. And that's a tremendous accomplishment. And, it, and they achieve it here. It, yeah. you're, you're never you're 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 aware that the townspeople are not Broadway caliber, but you're not ever feeling like they don't belong up there.
1: Sometimes a great performance is not the
0: very best thing that, that you can be involved with. So that, true. That... Yeah. That's all we have time for in this inst- installment of Three on the Isle Theatre Lovers. I'm Terry Teachout. And I'm Peter Marks. You've been listening to Three on the Isle, a podcast from New York about theatre in America, hosted by American Theatre Magazine. Please let us
1: know what other topics you'd like to hear on future episodes. And don't forget to leave a review or rating on iTunes or Google
0: Play. And keep those letters coming. Thanks for listening. We'll be with you again soon on the aisle.